Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack, where we talk superheroes, movies, animation, and comics. I am your host, Josh Scar, and this week we are doing, uh, we're, we're bringing back our segment, Looking Back, which is when we go back in time and look at some movies and TV shows and anything else that happened during our extended hiatus from 2018 into late 2021. And this week we are going to be looking at the movie Upgrade starring Logan Marshall Green and written and directed by Lee Wanell. And joining me for this adventure is Antonio Palacios from the Cult Worthy podcast. Hey there, Antonio, how's it going? Hello. <laughs> I beat you to it. It's yeah, you did. And also joining us is Matt. I actually don't know your last name. I I don't know how or why. I listen to your podcast every week, and for whatever reason, it just always escapes me. You're just Matt. We keep it a secret. Oh, that's why. Gotcha. So, Matt from Decaying with the Boys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I love this show, and I was really anticipating coming on, so thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, both of you, and I'm very excited for this movie. This feels like it's something that should fit right into both of your wheelhouses, and I'm very excited to talk about this movie because it is a fun time. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about your podcasts. Uh, Matt, as the first-time guest on the podcast, we'll let you go first. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that because I, I need all the help I can get, Josh. So thank you. Uh, so I am one half of the d- dynamic duo from the Joe Tutorium. My other half, uh, Adam, is uh, a brewmeister in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then I just love to talk a lot of crap. So we come together and we have barroom talk that focuses on uh, combat sports, craft beer, pop culture, horror movies, just whatever we want to get our hands on and just be that corner barroom conversation you always wanted to get involved in we just bring it to you every sunday morning at 7 a.m it's a it's a really fun time i'm not huge into combat sports anymore and i'm I'm not a beer drinker but it's it's always fun to listen to at the very least and just the passion you guys have is is palpable and so it's it's always fun so right there with uh, casting views and uh decaying with the boys that's that's usually my sunday morning routine it's nice to be counted among with uh, the, the guys from Casting Views. I love those guys. <laughs> I love that little rivalry rivalry you guys had going for a while. It was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it was too short-lived, in my opinion. I, I agree. I think it could have gone at least six more weeks. <laughs> yeah, we had, some, we had some pretty cool promo ideas to cut, and then uh, no, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Antonio, you've been on the show before, and uh, obviously we, we share both of your ads on the this podcast, but feel free to let everyone know about the Cultworthy and the Cultworthy Classic. Well, I mean, yeah, I feel like I've been on your show, and you've been on mine enough times that people know who I am and my show, the Cultworthy Podcast, the Cultworthy Classic. I guess the biggest news is that um, the Cultworthy Classic has now officially switched platforms, so we're kind of taking a week off this week to get all the episodes migrated over, so... We're going to have just like a better flow, better access to episodes and different platforms that you can listen to it on. And I think it's just what the show needed. It was getting big enough that it could like follow its big brother into that important change. But um, we got some really great stuff coming up in October. We've got some movie stars on the docket. I'm going to keep them a secret. Just keep your eye on Twitter while I uh, slowly let that news out. But yeah, the next couple of months look like a lot of fun. So yeah, keep keep your eye on that. It's super awesome to see how your podcast is growing and how people are reaching out to you and uh, just wanting to get involved with your show because you you definitely deserve it. Both of you deserve everything that comes your way uh, as far as positive things. If it's negative, it's not deserved. You guys don't deserve bad things in life. You're very sweet. Thank you. Well, I feel like we reach a good gambit, right? Like, yeah, like Matt's got Matt is like just conquering this whole indie beer scene and these homebrew beer scenes. Meanwhile, you've got comic book writers on your show and I'm getting film people on my show. I feel like we're all like taking some really significant steps in the near future. It's really exciting. Yeah, and we are part of a, a brain trust group, as we like to call it, that's really kind of pushing each other to to do better, to do more. And it's super awesome to just have that support group as well. And that's what I use yeah, it as, I think, the most, too, because whenever I'm feeling down about myself or what I'm doing on my podcast, I come to you guys. I'm like, I'm feeling down. And then all you guys collectively <laughs> hug me from your uh, respective states and locations. 
Well, I mean, if you guys want a little ego boost, I mean, uh, you re- both of you recently collaborated on the cult worthy and just the the dopamine that I got from listening to both of you, like you're two of my favorite voices in podcasting. And just I'm like, I need that in my show. I, I just need that that sound in my ears for recording. And I need my listeners to have that sound, too. So I was like, this needs to be a package deal because they, they had a really great episode and hopefully it translates into this one, too. It's how we kicked off the summer, man. We kicked off the summer with summertime horror and slasher films on the Cult Worthy podcast where Matt came on. It's one of the most highest rated episodes that I've got. And now that we're kind of tailing out of the summer, you know, now we're looking into Halloween time. So it might be the time to talk about horror films again, especially on on, on your show. But I don't know, man, like this is this is kind of a horror film. If you think about it, it's it's like a sci fi horror, don't you think? Yeah, it's definitely more of like a psychological thriller, I think. Uh, but it definitely leans into that horror element with Lee Wanell having directed it. But before we get too deep into it, we do have to take our brain trust ad. And of all the podcasts that are getting the ad this week, it is Decaying with the Boys. Woo! So <laughs> we will be right back. Welcome back to the Jojitorium. It's the king with the boys. That's right, it's Matt, it's Adam, two comedic co-hosts that talk about what they love. Beers, combat sports, pop culture, horror movies, and whatever else we want. So subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to catch new episodes dropping every Sunday morning. And we're back, and as previously mentioned, we are here with Antonio and Matt. We're here to talk about Upgrade, the 2018 film starring Logan Marshall Green and directed by Lee Wanell, written by Lee Wanell as well. And uh, let's just kind of dive into it. Spoiler alert ahead. And gents, let's just kind of start off with your thoughts on this film. Uh, Matt, I believe this is the first time you've seen it. Yeah, so... This is the first time I've seen it, and what I always like to do in these instances, I will watch it once and take all my notes, and then I'll watch it again, completely focused on the film. And so I think I've actually watched it three times since the you let me know we were going to do this together, and um, just picking up little things by the third time. This movie is super interesting uh, from all three different aspects. Because the third time I was kind of like drinking beer and messing around a little bit too, but. It was still amazing. Antonio, your thoughts? I mean, I saw this when it came out. So when you said you wanted to talk about it, I was excited to rewatch it again because I hadn't watched it again since the first time. And it was one of those films that was just like satisfying upon my first watch. So I didn't have to like go back and re-examine it. So now that I have, I've got like even more thoughts about it. But I'll get it deeper when we get into the conversation. If I had to like, if I had to put the, the, a single word on this film, like I said a minute ago, it's satisfying. If you are a sci-fi, psychological thriller, even horror fan, this film, it satisfies. I I agree with what both of you just kind of said. The first time I ever saw this, I was actually laid up in a hospital bed. For lack of a better word, I had a nose job done and uh, I didn't react well to my, my medication. I took it down wrong and it hit my uvula and it like swelled up and I almost choked on it. And I had to sit in the hospital for three days with a swollen uvula, just looking forward and drooling into a cup. So I just kind of put my tablet down in my lap and watched a, a bunch of movies. And this was one of them. I haven't watched it since because Ricky doesn't really care for these kind of movies, but I've been wanting to watch it again. So I was like, oh, well, I have to watch it for the podcast. So um, I'm going to stay up late and watch it again. When I saw this back in 2018, the social relevance of what technology is right now even though it was only four years ago has changed dramatically so not to get too deep into spoiler territory but like four years ago no one knew what the word neurolink meant and here four years later it's kind of like the hot word especially when you're talking about billionaire developers like elon musk who one of the characters is essentially trying to be it really has changed the way i see this film and like where it thinks technology is going Definitely. And uh, one of the first things we see as far as technology in this movie is a self-driving car, which essentially is like its own little built-in office. Uh, we see Asha, Asha, 
the woman that plays Logan Marshall Green's character, Gray, uh, her his wife, and she's having a conference call. Like the room is completely blacked out and the car is just driving itself. And all I can think of is how paranoid I would be that this thing is driving me somewhere that I can't even see where it's going because I'm too entrenched in the technology with inside of it. I thought about the same thing, too, about my, my paranoia spiked heavy. My anxiety spiked heavily when I saw that, you know, a million things were going on in the car. And I thought the same thing, like, oh, man, I don't know if I'd be able to be comfortable. But then when I took a step back from him, like, that's her. That's the normality for her. So it's just it, it's it was to see her so calm in that moment while I'm in the audience just freaking out. Uh, and, and that's why, like. I didn't connect so much with that character as I did with gray. Cause I, I feel like gray and I have similar uh, ideas and how we kind of steer ourselves towards technology with caution and, and a little bit of repose. Like you want to make sure you're doing it the right way. and It's not going to take you over. Yeah. And the thing that makes gray interesting in this movie is the fact that he is very old school. He is more of a modern man than he is. Well, uh, this is like a takes place in the year like 2048 or 2050, something like that. And he has no implants. He's not really into technology. He likes working with his hands. And in this mo- movie, um, society has basically become entirely automated. There are still automatic cars on the road, like the, the self-driving cars are more for the upper upper class. But it, it is a big commentary on technology. And uh, like Antonio said, it's. Even back then, technology has already kind of surpassed some of the things that they were even predicting would be considered negatives in this movie. The overall premise of the movie is Gray has uh, is working on a car and he it's uh, Antonio, you're much better at these sort of things. You want to take the reins? (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what kind of car it is. Maybe Matt does, but apparently he restores classic cars which are now like boutique items that only the wealthy can afford. And because they are in such a technology-driven society, this kind of antiquated artisan skill of repairing old cars is now valuable, and he's like a rarity. So that's kind of how he is making his money. And they even make a comment of it, and I think it's a good social commentary thing as well, where she is like a bigwig in a tech company, so she kind of wears the pants financially for the family. And he's fine with that because they have a comfortable relationship. He can, you know, jump into his his passion and still make some money for it. And I think that is one of the commentaries I, I really liked about this movie is because here is a guy who is supposed to be Elon Musk, and his name is Aaron, right? Yeah, uh, Aaron. Jeez, uh, uh, I can't remember. I got I had the IMDb pulled up, but yeah, he's essentially Elon Musk. They even like stick with the uh, the phonetic phrasing of it. It's like Elon Keen, yes, I think, do. is the name. <laughs> there, There is a lot of, like you said, phonetic connections to real-life developers. And even, I think, just the, the name of the companies themselves sound very much like Tesla and things like that. But yeah, he this guy is buying a classic car from Gray. Gray brings his wife along to this guy's house, which is underground by the ocean side. And... I thought that it was a little bit, I don't know, telling the first time I saw the film that this guy is so willing to show them, especially someone who is essentially the competition, a chip called STEM that is supposed to be the revolutionizing piece of neurotechnology, right? And that's where things kind of take off because on their way home in her self-driving car, their car is malfunctioning, it drives off the road, and they are attacked by what seems like a gang of hoodlums, but they are much more than they seem, and that's what kind of leads us into the second act action. Yeah, and very well said. Uh, and uh, what you said about Aaron as well, just the way he, the way that interaction went, uh, have knowing what happens throughout the rest of the movie now, it, it is really off-putting that he's introduced to Asha and he's just kind of like, oh, you think that's impressive? Wait till you see what I've done. It just completely almost unprompted. Like she's just trying to be courteous and nice and just like, oh, I mean, we don't do what you do, but you what you do is amazing. And he's just like, oh, yeah, well, let me show you this. 
it was it it's really off-putting the second time you you see it once you know what's happening i was gonna agree with that yeah whenever you start to see i mean when you you spoilers ahead and everything but when you see the ending of the movie and you go back to how he was so arrogant during that exchange you're kind of like oh man you you have so much pride (laughs) there's so much pride that you stand on uh and that's you know the ultimate undoing of any person really is to be too proud of the thing that they've you know put their heart and soul into and, and look past you know the, the cons of those pros you know and it's weird too because like before we get further in the story i feel like there is a lot of stuff happening in the 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 news climate right now that feels very relevant to this where you are hearing polarizing views of let's say artificial technology and artificial intelligence of where it's at already and what they're telling us where it could be in 20 years. You've got like one group of people saying like, oh, no, AI is already beyond where we think it is. It's already creating its own languages. I know they had like two Facebook uh, algorithms that were talking to each other in their own created language. They had to shut it down because they didn't teach you to do that. It taught itself how to do that. And then we, I heard a story just recently that one of the Google techs that was pretty high up said that they essentially developed an AI that they think summoned a demon. Like there are <laughs> things going on that they just sound like conspiracy theories and, you know, just the the apocryphal stories that are supposed to scare us about AI. But then you have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and and other academics who think that AI is just something that we'll never lose control of. We're just going to implement it into our lives to make our lives easier. I guess it depends on like what side of the of the river are you standing on, how you view the threat of AI. And this film kind of, like I said, for four years ago, is really playing with some of the things we're hearing about right now. Yeah, and the 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 application of this piece of work that Aaron created called STEM that we've been talking about, uh, what they use it for is when these hoodlums come after Asha and Gray is they kill Asha and they paralyze Gray, then Aaron shows up and he's like, hey, we can implant STEM and you can have full autonomy of your body again because he's he's left as a quadriplegic. He only has movement from the neck up. And STEM very quickly makes itself known that it is more than just a piece of hardware that's connecting his brain to his nervous system. And that's that's where the eeriness starts to really kick in. And that's where uh, we get to start seeing some of the cracks in what's happening and where the mystery starts to unfold as to like who put the hit out on Asha and Gray and what is the the meaning behind it. Because I, I do feel like the movie pretty quickly makes you think like, obviously, it's Aaron. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Well, I also think we're 80s kids here. I mean, because this is also where the the movie gets awesome. It goes from suspense and psychological thriller into the sci-fi action that a lot of us crave and the trailer showed us the first time we saw it like that's what i was excited for with this film but i gotta i gotta ask you guys us being kids of the 80s did the voice not remind you of kit from knight rider like this guy had kit essentially in his brain i was hoping you would say that yeah. that's the first thing i thought of as soon as that <laughs> that voice came out I was like all right, where's Hasselhoff? I, <laughs> this is we needed him. <laughs> if there was one thing this film was missing, it was Hasselhoff. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't hassle the Hoff, man. The other thing, too, I was going to say, so like whenever this voice finally kicks in, and another thing that, that happens that I didn't realize till the second time, because I was like, oh, man, I started to feel, again, that the anxiety of the movie, the pace of the movie kind of picked up. And that's because the cinemato- cinematography changed significantly as soon as stem made itself known like all the pans were stabilized um all the movements became from uh eyes first then body Mm -hmm. and it was just it it reminded me so much of all those uh 80s and 90s sci-fi horror movies where like the robots walking down the hallway turns head sees target then turns body and it was just it, it, it just reminded me of all those things. And that's what got me completely sucked into the last three fourths of this, uh, this flick. 100%. Dude, I love that you said that just now because you got to give it to this guy, Logan Marshall Green. I liked him. The only thing I ever saw him in was Prometheus. And I thought he was one of the better Same. performances in Prometheus. 
he killed it in this. Like his performance of having to have one facial reaction completely contradict what his body is doing, kind of like Peter Weller and Robocop, like you were just saying. That yeah. is a fantastic performance. That cannot be easy. And when you throw complicated fight choreography into it while he maintains this this state of like his face is in panic because really his face and his mind are the only things that stem can't access everything else it can so you do see this constant struggle between the two and even on the second viewing i'm like man this is such a good performance no one talked about it the way it should because it's a genre film yeah and the 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 choreography, like uh, what you guys were just alluding to, the the first time we really get that awesome fight scene in the uh, the one trailer home, uh, there's a moment where uh, when, when Stem takes control for the fight, uh, the there's a a movement where the hand moves the face away from the knife attack, and that's because Stem only has control from the neck down. So if he doesn't right. use his hand to move that face, he's getting his face slashed off, and it, it's just the choreography and that, that fight and the movement that they created for it. it it's wonderful and weirdly beautiful. And uh, like you guys said, uh, the first time we, we see uh, gray moving around in his home, it's a, it's a, uh, like a steady cam shot where he's just front and center and he's moving very robotically. And the camera has him like centered squarely in the middle of the frame, which they, uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but they achieved a lot of these shots where he's focused so heavily in the center uh, of the frame and the camera moves with him by syncing up a cell phone with the the camera. And so the, the camera was oh, yeah. tracking his movements and keeping him center as best as it could. The fact that this movie was made for so little money and they covered everything in 30 days uh, just is a testament to what Lee Wanell can do with a good budget. Oh, yeah. Three million dollars. Yeah, he, he is the king. Yeah. Him and James Wan of low budget. Of filmmaking coming out with saw back in the early 2000s when practically nothing and turning that into the franchise that it was they've always maintained this real strict idea of like budget doesn't fix everything you get more creativity you get more results when you actually find ways to work around the problem instead of throwing money at it and that's one of the things that i liked about this film too because i know where it's coming from there is I guess that like maybe most people an uneven amount of science fiction technology on screen in the sense of maybe cityscapes or cars as you're downtown, everything is very futuristic, very minority report looking. But as soon as you get into like the industrial areas, you're pretty much in modern times, maybe even in the past, like you're seeing like 1990s minivans driving on the street. So I think that was a choice. I think that was a choice that the filmmakers made and it's things that we've seen before in movies like, equilibrium and imposter you know these sci-fi movies are low budget but they put the budget where it matters you definitely feel it in this film but i'm here for it i'm not shooting it down i think that it's a great tribute to how films like this have done it in the past i think too it's a it's a tell on the socioeconomic status in between uh the people that like like aaron who is supposed to be set aside as almost godlike yeah in comparison to someone like gray who's supposed to be uh, like the claw, like the claw, the gods and claws complex. So whenever you're seeing like a high speed chase, uh, when Gray's driving his vehicle and he's being pursued by the investigating detective, even the detective has that little bit of I don't trust technology as much as I possibly should. So like her vehicle is not self drive; it's manual, like yeah. his car. So and when they're they're chasing through that section of the city, like you said, you just start. I think I saw like a Dodge Stratus. Yeah, like, just, I saw it too. That's what I'm talking departure. about. <laughs> all this stuff and all the technology uh, now inside Gray's body leads him to continuing the investigation into his wife's murder because the police have kind of hit a dead end where they can't investigate anything because there's not enough evidence. And it's uh, another knock against the technology of the future because they have drones everywhere and, and they're supposed to be able to identify people. But because the people who attacked Gray and his wife, they have this technology that can basically firewall their face and it blocks them from being able to identify themselves. Gray has to kind of take everything into his own hands. And with STEM now making itself aware, they work together to try and figure out who murdered his wife and why they did what they did to him. And it just leads to some awesome action sequences and 
some great twists. Uh, this movie moves along at a clip. It's only about 100 minutes long, but it, it you get so much in that 100 minutes. Uh, but what did you guys think of the investigation portion of the movie? I like it. I think there was like a little bit of Holmes and Watson going on, you know, like you've got this guy who essentially is the embodiment of STEM. STEM is helping him interact with his environment and with witnesses using its artificial intelligence. He really is just the meat vessel to get it there. But the part that makes it work is that he wants to get there. He's not at odds with STEM, at least at first. He, he actually is relying on STEM to get him where he needs to go. And I like the way it was written. I like I like a good story between like an artificial person or intelligence and a human. I thought it was done really well on this because even though we'll reveal who STEM is later, there is a lot of enjoyable banter between the two of them, especially since he's inside his head. It kind of reminded me of the film Moon, where Sam Rockwell is interacting with Gertie the robot for the whole movie. It's just him and him and this robot. And you don't feel like it is, you feel like the robot's a person. There's, there's empathy there. There's emotion there. And there's a relationship there. I like it when films can do that and it doesn't feel forced. Yeah. I'm glad you said that too, because my favorite thing about this is gray trying to split himself away from the uh, robotic immorality of STEM at certain points of this film, but then ultimately understanding that he needs that to succeed in what he kind of put his own uh, mindset into his own mission. And, and I know you said moon, but for some reason, my, my dumb lizard brain went to idle hands because he can like have, <laughs> yeah, I see that's like, too. Oh, there's dead Seth green's right there, man. Just tell me what to do. No one else can see him. The bottles through his head, but Hey, look, Oh, he's going to tell me exactly what to do. I'm going to do it. And maybe I get to kiss Jessica Alba and, <laughs> and, and not as, as funny of course in, in this movie, but it had the same play. Like gray had to figure out how to, have full blown conversations with someone who can control and shut down parts of his body to appease that, but also to get to the final result of his mission and not break the seams of his own morality, but still needing to rely on something that has no emotion. And Antonio, one of the things you talked about with uh, hearing stem in his head, one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie, which uh, it, it unfairly gets compared to, another 2018 movie venom because of the similar looking actors between Logan Marshall green and Tom Hardy. And just the premise of having a voice in your head, making you do superhuman things. Uh, I think this movie is maybe a little bit more akin to ex machina, but if there is a comparison to be made with venom, one of the things that gives this movie a, an immediate leg up on venom is that they, they talk about how and why he's hearing stem and they immediately cover the fact that, Stem cannot read his mind. He can only mm -hmm. communicate with Gray if he is talking out loud. Whereas Venom, there's this huge thing where Venom knows everything that Eddie knows, but Eddie has to talk out loud for Venom to hear him. But like if he can re hear, read his mind and re get into his memories, like why can't he just have an inter internal conversation? I I'm going on a tangent. Yeah, it's a good tangent because what I think is, like you said, the leg up on this film too, is that there was no expectation of this film because it was an original story. Sure, it was an original story based on ideas that have been explored in other media. But when you have a, a intellectual property like Venom, people have already made up their mind of what they want their Venom to be before the film even hits the screen. This lets you into the characters, into the setup of the story as it's going along. So I think that's where it definitely has a leg up. And I prefer this film to Venom 100%. Oh, yeah. Anyone who thinks Venom is better than this movie, they, uh, they're a lot of their opinions, but they're wrong. They, they can... They can have that opinion, but it's it's not correct. I'll go one step further. If you think Venom's better than this movie, we can fight. I'll fight you. Get in the cage. <laughs> yeah. Thunderdome. Yeah, but uh, I would say too, man, when we're talking about the way that the film is this kind of detective story at the same time, it does follow some of the traditional sci-fi tropes where it's like, well, you have to find a hacker We've seen that in Minority Report. It's pretty much the exact same scene as, Min as Minority Report. But I don't mind it because it really would be a logical thing to do if you were having someone trying to tap into STEM. And that is the other conflict in the second act is the fact that Aaron doesn't want Gray 
putting his chip at risk by sending him out into the dirty parts of town looking for revenge. So according to Stem, Aaron's trying to shut it down remotely. In order to get around that, they have to find a hacker to get rid of all of the uh, controllable inputs that Aaron has that would make Stem self-sustainable and self-controlling, which the way he kind of honeypots Gray into doing that is saying, hey, you don't want to get shut down and left paralyzed in the street, do you? No, you need me to function so we can finish this mission. Very manipulating and kind of brilliant because you don't see it on the first watch. Yeah, and there's also a great line in that moment where uh, Gray talks about part of what's going on in this hacker room is that there are a bunch of people living in Ready Player One, essentially. They're just living in a VR world. And Gray openly asks who would want to live in a fake world. And the the hacker just says people who don't want to feel the pain anymore. And mm-hmm. that that's a great bit of foreshadowing for the ending of this movie. Yeah, it is. This is also too where in every sci-fi movie, I always want to feel some kind of dystopian kind of layout. And I felt like that short time when Gray was with Jamie, the perceived hacker, when everyone just linked up to VR and IV bags and, and just talking shortly while he's completely laid out waiting for um, input guards to be put into the, into STEM, <clears throat> just asking like, again, like, why would anyone want to do that? And and you're kind of sitting there thinking to yourself the same thing, but that's when we get to swing the pendulum back on ourselves because we have that tech. We have that tech now and it is affordable and people are doing it in perpetuity. You have people who lose days, weeks, months of their lives because they're playing on the Oculus, you know, the dumb little 15 second TikToks of someone playing this hyper violent game with realistic graphics and the ability to grab any firearm you want to or swords or it's just being able to take what we are now in 2022 and link it into that one part really gave me that hopeless dystopian feeling that i always hunt for in just about every sci-fi uh thriller or sci-fi horror movie that i'm looking at 100 percent. and you know we, we have to thank philip k dick for that because i really think uh, of all the sci-fi authors, he's the one that kind of set the stu- set the stage for this kind of technology with Total Recall. You know, we can remember it for you wholesale, the original story. They talk about it in Minority Report. We've seen it in William Gibson novels. I think that we expect to see this now in, in science fiction films because we've seen so much of it in our reality. And it is an interesting thing that what was sci-fi... 10, 15 years ago, like Matt just said, is a real thing today. It's just marketed differently. But I'm telling you, man, once it gets too hot outside and resources become scarce and it just becomes cheaper and more sustainable to stay indoors, yeah, you're going to see stuff like that. I No doubt about it. Yeah, it is a, a pretty harrowing uh, prophecy, I guess one could say. Um, But continuing with Gray's journey, once those inputs are taken down, uh, that's kind of where we really start. The tension really amps up because when STEM comes back, the voice tone has changed and things don't quite feel right or as right as we've come to know them with this new uh, implant in Gray. And he goes home covered in blood and his mom sees him. And the the detective comes that's been working with him to try and figure out what's going on with his wife. And it just it all starts to fall apart and we get a, a mad blitz to the end of this thing. The turn of STEM where he I think it's after the detective leaves is when he starts saying, like, you have no control here. I'm the one that's controlling the body and we're going to we're going to keep doing this. And that's when you really see the extent of the hold that stem truly has not only on gray but on the entire situation because when gray says you know i'm not going to allow you to do this and stem just basically goes okay see ya you're a paraplegic again and then goes on it goes radio silent audio out and gray's sitting there in that brief moment of being a paraplegic again and you can almost see his eyes scan the room like someone going through withdrawal the fear, the anxiety, the 
he does a great job. His facial expressions and the way he emotes during this movie is what really just really makes me want to watch it again. I, I need to watch it again. <laughs> um, just seeing the way that the fear and the panic and, and everything just washes over his face. And then he just calls back to stem, 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 please come back. And all of a sudden stems like, we need bitch. <laughs> yeah, the attitude like, really changed. <laughs> you, told, you told me you don't need me. Yeah. We completely have like skipped over the whole Cobalt mercenary team, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because uh, at this point, there's only one member left, if I recall. And these, yeah, these guys, these guys apparently were products of Asha, Gray's wife's company. And they are more in tune with like real true cybernetics and nanotechnology instead of this Neuralink immersion technology. So I think that's why Aaron thinks that her company's a dinosaur because like you're playing with bodies and meat and putting all these cybernetics in people where we are just focusing on one thing that can control the human body. <laughs> Pros and cons, but these guys are definitely built for war. They got guns built into their arms. They can shoot nanobots out of their orifices. Like they have all this different kind of tech. So in a way, I feel like they're more superior than than Aaron's tech when it comes to that kind of aggressiveness. But I think Aaron's tech with STEM is something that could actually develop that technology on its own, given the chance to manifest in a human, right? Definitely. Yeah, I, I for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you got you have three guys that have 50 caliber uh, firearms like in their dominant arms where they can load into their bicep. They can scan through walls, heat signatures, nanobots in there. And they sneeze um, super strength really fast. But the thing that gray has that they don't is that they, the soldiers are so are so in tune with their bio biomechanics that they rely on them so heavily, but gray still has the, uh, the human side of it, which is, you know, to, to go to the final, the final guy here, the final, um, the altered upgraded assailant, uh, when they're going and having an exchange there and the, they're talking about, don't put your emotions in this, uh, you know, talking to gray and then gray, you know, stems like, Hey man, I'm out of ideas. Um, you need to figure this out. Like, and 50 caliber barrel, like basically up against his head and he uses, emotion to to win over the last bit of humanity that that guy had left to take him and then kill him in one of the most brutal scenes i think in the entire movie next to tolan getting cut up for information yeah when this movie decides to turn in the gore it really does it, it uses the old school horror effects for the gore which i appreciated even though it is really not that movie it goes for it the good old squishes <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the 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 gang from Cobalt. Uh, the interesting thing with them too is that they are they're kind of a cult where they believe that because of their cybernetic enhancements that they are an evolution of humanity. Where what we figure out with STEM is that he's trying to become that true evolution, and uh, the the final boss guy. I'm blanking on his name. Fisk. Fisk. That's right. He he kind of views himself as equals with what Gray and Stem are. And he's just kind of like, I don't want to kill you. You know, we want to welcome you into the family. Yeah. And it obviously that's not in Stem's prerogative because Stem has ulterior motives, as we have kind of become a little more aware of since the the safeguards have been put down, taken, taken down. The nefarious plan continues to unveil because we we believe that Aaron has been the one to facilitate all of this. And as we learn through the next scene back in Aaron's really, I that's such a weird house. We didn't really talk about the house like it's built into the ground, uh, which, again, is kind of meant to really put into the fact that this guy's weird and he is more about technology than he is anything else because he lives on this beautiful plot of land next to the ocean. But he chooses to live underground where there's no windows. It's just dark gray and metal walls. And it's just like, what if a really good rain comes? There doesn't seem to be a door other than the gate. Well, I have a theory about that. I think that that has been designed by STEM all along because 
this film, once the titles close, when we discuss the, the ending of the film, it becomes the Terminator. It becomes the Matrix. This is, it really has kind of like a foreshadowing of once you know that STEM is in control of anything, I think STEM has put this guy underground and all the technology for all the shit that's going to come in the future, whatever it's a nuclear war or some kind of natural disaster. STEM has predicted all possible scenarios and how is he going to maintain his own survival and evolution? Because that is his main goal more than anything. It's how do we survive and sustain? I think too, the one thing I was because I love Mr. Green, Mr. Logan Marshall Green, uh, and I kind of draw back to Prometheus. I think Aaron is kind of like the engineers. He wants to be God. So whenever you come into that house, like he has nightshade. He knows he can keep that alive with minimal water, with no sunlight. At one point, he controls the weather in his little laboratory where he has the rain coming down from the sky because mm-hmm. he feels sad. And then what did God ultimately do? He created man. Aaron created STEM. And then man theoretically and this is you know theology and it's at least (laughs) academic uh man became too powerful for god's rule so man instilled his own laws much like stem became too much too powerful for aaron so stem made his own rules that kind of leads into the end of the movie where we realize that stem has actually been pulling the strings on this the whole time he's even had aaron doing his bidding which is an interesting twist on things because you would think as the creator of the AI, he would be a little more hesitant to help it out. Be like, oh, this is weird, but he's more invested in seeing how STEM would evolve. And he's also uh, kind of a cautionary tale as to loving too much technology because the minute STEM's like, I want a human body, this is the guy because he has no implants. He's essentially pure, meaning gray. Aaron just goes along with it because he wants to see what his creation will do. And again, STEM is the one telling him what to do. He's like, I don't even run the company. Aaron says, I don't even run the company anymore. This is all STEM. And it's it's just a really interesting change of pace because, again, he's he's an Elon Musk allegory. And I, I don't, I mean, maybe, who knows, but I don't really see Elon Musk being the kind of person who would just kind of give up their power just to see what would happen. I think the brilliance in the guy who plays Aaron is the performance is really apathetic as in he almost feels like he should have STEM in him so he can merge with his own technology. It feels like he does have this kind of resentment towards Asha and towards Gray because as we find out, STEM has picked Gray because Gray is interesting. Gray doesn't have any of the desires for technology like most of the people in this time frame do. And he feels that that would be a more suitable host for what essentially is a, is a cybernetic parasite. So I think there is like that little bit of apathy in his performance because he's like, well, I created him and I should be a part of it, but he doesn't want me. He wants him. And I am now kind of just a slave to my own creation. And the first time you watch the film, you really don't catch that. But the second time, I caught it even more. And I felt there was like a real subtle brilliance to the way he emoted those scenes, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. I think he he can come across maybe a bit more as like a mad scientist type. But once you know what the twist is, then yeah, I can definitely see that where he is kind of more just almost heartbroken and just kind of doing what he can to see if he can't save the relationship with his creation. It becomes very vulnerable. It's something you don't see throughout the film. And then right there at the apex of of that particular moment, you really see even the way his eyes affix, affix themselves to different people in the room. You can see when he looks over at Gray, it, it, he almost looks like an astonishment. And then, like you said, there's, there is a resentment, you know, um, and then just just trying desperately uh, the scene where he sees the system error when he tried to shut him down remotely and that the user has been disconnected. That's where you start to see the vulnerability. And then, like I said, the apex of it is right there when they're all gathered in the laboratory and Aaron is utterly defeated, but still trying, like just holding on to those last couple straws. Like maybe I can make this work and stem. 
as we've seen before, has no emotion, has no attachments, only has a mission. And that mission being to obtain a, a human host and a human body. And as we mentioned, Gray is kind of that guy because he doesn't have attachments to technology. He doesn't have any implants. He is 100% human, kind of like uh, some natural born humans in the, the Matrix. They don't have any of the plugs. That's essentially Gray. And the the final part of his, of Stem's mission is to break him and break his mind so that he can have full control. And in a, a moment of trying to stop Stem, he attempts to commit suicide, which snaps him into a, a dreamscape, essentially throwing himself into his own version of a matrix where he's back with his wife and just kind of living in his own fantasy world, which, as we mentioned before, was alluded to in the virtual reality room. Yeah, it was a great way to circle back to it for sure from from the moment that you mentioned the virtual reality room. And just the idea that he's such a strong-minded guy, the only thing that could really cause him to snap was the feeling of just ultimate defeat or being partially responsible for what could be the end of the world. You know, and Stem knew that was going to be the breaking point. And it's really, really well-written for a genre film. Do you think at one point that Stem tested a theory? Like, there's that one scene where Gray is laying down in Asha sitting next to him eating a piece of pizza and grabs his arm and he jars awake. He's like, no, it wasn't a dream. It was something more. And it, it kind of felt like that was so, it was like, oh, he just, he has these core memories of her. But now thinking about it, I think that was Stem like running a scenario, trying to find the thing that really gets, gets Gray going. And, and of course, you know, Asha's, you know, the forefront of all this. So I think Stem could draw those conclusions but putting that all together and formulating that simulation for Gray to be in, I think there is a hint of STEM possibly being able to read Gray's mind a little bit. I think once those safeguards come down, it's definitely the case. Because I, if I remember, the when he wakes up from the, the safeguards being put out, that's the first time we ever see him hallucinate. And that's when he sees Asha in the VR room. Yeah. So either it's just a hint of his mental wear and tear. Cause I think that's also the first time he goes back home after everything. And he's like, I haven't slept for two days. I'm going to go home and go to bed. Yeah. He, he'd run himself ragged just following the, you know, the guidance of STEM or actually just being pulled along by STEM. Um, of course, STEM not needing sleep and running the, the body ragged testing the limits. And I think that's the perfect time to STEM for STEM to run that simulation to see if he could get a uh, grade to go over the, uh, the top. They really don't maybe allude to it in the film, but if you kind of bring your own insight into it, you can tell that STEM has had access to all the technology in their home and the car. That's how it was able to get the car to veer off the road. So it probably has recorded their conversations. It probably knows voice patterns. And one of the things that they've been doing lately is they've been having people go into these sound booths and recording dictionary passages and words and telling stories and what ai is doing is ai is able to learn its vocal inflections and the words they use and starting to create like a psychological profile based off these people's voices the intent for that is so that they can create an artificial intelligence version of this person that can talk to their grandkids after they pass away or have you know conversations with relatives two or three generations down the road so maybe this is kind of something like that, where it's created a psychological profile on both Asha and Gray based off of all the access to whatever technology we have in the world, which, as we know, we think everything's listening to us because it probably is. I think that's taking it down like a little deeper rabbit hole than the movie presents. But I think it's kind of there. Oh, definitely. I, I do feel like that's that's alluded to pretty heavily once we realize that STEM has essentially been scouting Gray for some time. And they have to have the access to the the car to get that to go into the, the bad neighborhood at the beginning of the movie. Plus, you have to figure uh, when Aaron hired Gray to fix up his car, that was all part of the, the vetting process to see if he was a worthy host for STEM. But as we're, we're kind of winding down, uh, we, we have a scale on the Talking Smack podcast here where uh, we have two grades for a movie. It's either a must-see or a pass. So... Uh, Antonio, is Upgrade a must-see or a pass for you? 
Oh, it's definitely a must-see. I, I would say if we weren't talking about this on your show right now, it would pop up on mine as a must-see because it is good old-fashioned sci-fi suspense thriller, but with the relevance of what we are dealing with right now with artificial intelligence, and even though it takes place like 20 years in the future, it really feels very, very modern, very, very now. And Matt, how would you grade this on the Talking Smack scale? It's a must-see. Uh, from top to bottom, because it can be, it can be split up in so many different ways for any kind of uh, movie going fan. You can like it on its surface as a thriller action sci fi. You could dig deep on it, like the three of us are right now, to try to find theology <laughs> that are in some <laughs> of the scenes. Or you can, you know, just be the kind of person that really digs the idea of uh, you know Skynet really coming to life. If we didn't learn a lesson from T two. What lessons haven't we <laughs> learned yet? So it's a must see. And I agree with both of you. It's it's a must see for me as well. Like I said, I've only seen it twice, but both times I've enjoyed this movie immensely. There's so much to take from it. And once you know the twist, you can keep an eye out for all these things. And it just holds up so well. But I do have a few more questions for you guys. As I was researching some things for this episode, one of the things that came up in just a completely random search, which I mean, I, I don't like Screen Rant, but God bless them for their their talent in SEO. <laughs> this movie spells out a lot of the the ending for you uh, by the end of it. But uh, because of this this article that I found, I just have a couple questions. One, who's responsible for Asha's death? Aaron, I would say, because you, you flicked over the first domino. You allowed something to get so far out of your grasp and control. So I'd say Aaron plays the biggest part because he's the creator. Yeah, I would probably say okay. the same thing, too, because... I don't consider matters of circumstance responsibility. You know, he he took Asha along to Aaron's house just to see how cool it was. I think that there might be a little bit of like MacGuffin-y stuff in there of how are we going to get this guy into the self-driving car? Because that's the whole point. He would have normally just driven the car by himself and then taken a cab home, but he got her to go with him because he wanted to show him, show her the house and show her this guy, because there might be like a little bit of hero worship on her part for this guy. So I would say that's more of a matter of circumstance. I wouldn't call it responsibility. Aaron and Stem were the ones that probably laid those groundworks for that to happen. So I would go back to Aaron again. Okay, so this this article that I found goes three paragraphs to get to the point of, however, Aaron reveals all his actions were at the behest of Stem. Aaron says he hasn't been in charge of Vessel for some time, with an implied stem took over all aspects of Aaron's life. Uh, further, the artificial intelligence actually orchestrated all the events that brought it to being implanted in Gray. As Aaron explains it, stem chose Gray. Stem further confirms this to Gray. As a result, Gray attempts to fight stem's control, yada, 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 at the end of the movie. So it turns out stem is responsible for the murder of Asha, but it's unclear if her death was part of the AI's plan all along. Which, to this writer's discredit, I do think it's part of the plan because otherwise you don't break Gray's mind without that death. And they pretty clearly kill her intentionally. Yeah, but I don't buy that whole theory just because of, you know, like, for example, Alan J. Oppenheimer created the nuclear bomb. He took responsibility for all the deaths. You know, I am death, you know, destroyer of worlds. He kind of like puts down the groundwork of how your creation, even though maybe not meant to be the destroyer of worlds, the destroyer of people, you still have that accountability on your shoulders. So I still say it's Aaron. I think that's probably more accurate. Um, so the next uh, next question here is what happened to Gray? What do you guys think happened to Gray? Even though, again, it was pretty well spelled out for us by the end of the movie. He got into the most beautiful trap that anyone with that amount of trauma and pain could ever get into mind is broken he's bifurcated from his body he's placed in a nice little corner of his own mind where he gets to live out a life that he always wanted he is it's it's kind of like uh gosh it's it's just to you you flip you flip sides now you are stem you are locked away into this one part this one corner of the mind and uh you know uh 
as we heard in the matrix before ignorance is bliss i know this steak is just zeros and ones but to me it's a juicy fatty rare steak. yeah i consider this a happy ending because we connect with our hero you know we we watch this story with our hero in mind we as the audience should be able to separate ourselves from the hero to what's going to happen to the world eventually based on what this story plays out. But if we are following the path of our hero, our hero's ending is happy. He would have a miserable life as a quadriplegic. Now he gets to live this, this fantasy world, which is going to eventually end as his body dies. Cause you know, STEM's going to end up creating more and, and probably even find a better host eventually. So when that happens, man, he's just going to fade away. There is no more pain for him. And I think that's a happy ending. In my weird little world, it's a happy ending. I agree. Well, according to Screen Rant, you're both wrong because for all intents and purposes, Gray is dead. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> so there's a bunch of nonsense here. And then uh, the film quickly cuts to Gray waking up in a hospital bed with Asha, Asha coming in and two, the two seemingly ready to live out their lives of it as if the only only the car crash happened, not the rest of the attack. However, we soon learn Gray wasn't successful in killing himself or STEM. Instead, as STEM explains, Gray's mind is broke and retreated into itself. Given that the scene in the hospital appears to be a, as a kind of afterlife, heaven presumably, it can be presumed Gray is essentially brain dead. Nuance. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh, it's I feel like all these articles are like, mm, what's the easiest way I can get out of this? I started writing this. And I just got to get done with it. When's it due? Midnight? Shit. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. There, There's one more that says what was stems end game. But again, the, the the movie spells it out for you. I don't know how people wouldn't fully understand this. And it's just a again, bless screen rant for their horribleness and just their mastery of SEO. Uh, but there was one thing I did want to mention that uh, I, I missed when we first started talking about this movie before the attack, when Gray and Asha are driving home in the self-driving car. The most realistic thing about this movie is that they do exactly what, you know, people will do in those cars if they are that roomy and self-driving. And that is they get ready to have some maritals. Well, people do that in cars that aren't self-driving. <laughs> I've seen the videos, so. <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, that's, that's new. new to me, man. <laughs> but yeah, like I still, I, I saw that. I'm like, that's exactly what people would do if they had self-driving cars. 100%. I mean, you see that cyber truck from Tesla? <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> just depends on how much space they have behind all that, all the wheels. And like that, that thing just does not look roomy at all, but maybe it's just the size of the windows. I still love that demo that they had where it's like, it's a completely indestructible window, hammer smash. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, that will pretty much wrap it up here. Um, upgrade, very fun film. Being here with you guys this evening. Super fun as well. Uh, I can't wait for this episode to come out. Uh, if you want to share your socials, Antonio, I'll let you go first. Oh, yeah, sure. Follow me on Twitter at the Cult Worthy Podcast, but you can find all of my socials on thecultworthy.com, all my reviews, blogs, and links to my favorite fellow podcasters like these gentlemen. Oh, first of all, I'll drop Adams because if you want to know what's going on down the brew lab, what you do is follow Adam at Batch underscore brew on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The boys, we are at Decay and WTB on all those same social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have our email, DecayandWTB at gmail.com. We have merch like everybody else. Um, and all my complaints can be sent to thecultworthy.com. <laughs> I'll take them. <laughs> and you can follow me at Josh underscore Scar. And you can follow the podcast at Talking Smack Pod. You can email us at tsmackpod at gmail.com. Thank you, Leo Allen, for our musical themes. And please subscribe, rate, review to Talking Smack, The Cultworthy, The Cultworthy Classic, Decaying with the Boys. Leave great five-star reviews because uh, at least these two guys deserve these reviews. I don't know about myself, but I'm just... You do. I'll Stop okay. it. Nah, I'm just... <laughs> nah. Please definitely follow them on Twitter, uh, on podcasts, because again, it, it different kind of podcasts, but they're both so much fun. Thank you everyone for listening antonio matt thank you again for being here thanks for having me yeah man thank you and everyone listening thank you again take care 
And would either of you two like to do the honors of doing Watch Star Trek? Yeah, Watch Star Trek. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. What the hell's wrong with you? You're not already doing it. 